My name is Joe Hawkins, and this is the History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 50 Objects podcast. Hello and welcome back to another episode of History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and 50 Objects. First thing, sorry that this episode took me longer than normal to release. With Thanksgiving and family in town and a hectic work schedule, the excuses really stacked up. But here we are, so back to the show. Have you ever wondered why we have state birds? Every state has an official state bird. We know this is a thing, though most of us have no idea which bird belongs to which state or the story behind why we actually have these birds. This process dates back to ancient times. Rome had the eagle, just like we have the American bald eagle as a national bird. The Greeks adored the owl as, according to Greek mythology, the owl was sacred to the goddess of wisdom Athena. The owl was considered a protector of the Greek armies, hence, If an owl flew over the army before battle, this was believed to be a sign of victory. That's why the owl was often depicted on ancient coins and even today on the modern one-euro coin of Greece. Now, just a quick side note here. Of all the national state birds, China beats us all. Instead of just picking a bird, they chose a dragon. Now, birds have been used in modern-day battles as well. I read the story recently about a pigeon named G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe was used by the British during World War II. When the Allies entered war zones, they generally carried pigeons in baskets or slings. This is because most of the time, there was no phone lines and radio signals could be spotty. Pigeons, however, have an uncanny ability of finding their way back home from pretty much anywhere. So they served the Allies as messengers when modern technologies weren't functioning. G.I. Joe saved the day for the British. The story goes that on October 18, 1943, the Allies were taking the Italian village of Colvi Vecchia. I'm sure I just mispronounced that. I'm sorry. The British were on the ground and the Americans were attacking from the sky on October 18th, and the Germans wouldn't even put up a fight. They retreated before any fighting could happen and the British walked into the city and took it without firing a shot. However, there was now a major problem. The British leadership on the ground outside of the city discovered that the Americans were about to level the city, which would kill the British forces. As the radio men immediately began to send messages to the Americans, they discovered the radios weren't working. Distraught, the British broke down as there was nothing they could do to save their men. After taking the town from their enemies, the British were going to die at the hands of their allies until one soldier came forward carrying G.I. Joe the Pigeon. A message was quickly scribbled onto a scrap of paper attached to G.I. Joe's leg, and he was released. This must have been an extremely nervy time, and I think it would make a great movie. The U.S. base was over 20 miles away, and the bombs were to drop in 20 minutes. Could G.I. Joe make the run? G.I. Joe tore through the air at almost 60 miles an hour, across country he'd never seen before, and, fortunately arrived at the base just as the planes were about to take off. G.I. Joe the Pigeon had saved over 1,000 British lives, and for his service after the war, he'd be awarded the Dickon Medal of Gallantry 
the highest award the British gave out to animals. It turns out pigeons and birds can do amazing things. This was such a revelation to the Allies that during World War II, Congress even thought about banning people from hunting pigeons altogether. So from Greece to Rome to the World War II Allied pigeons, the lesson was this. If birds can save people, they'll be revered. Such will be the case for our object today. Today's object is the Siegel Monument. So what is the Siegel Monument and how did it come about? In the last episode, we discussed how the church finally arrived in the Salt Lake Valley. After marking the spot of the temple, setting up the foundations for a fort and resupplying, Brigham Young and the leaders left. They headed back to winter quarters to collect their families and organize the rest of the camps to move to their new home in the Rocky Mountains. As they traveled, they recorded seeing caravans of Mormon pioneers and how much it cheered their hearts to see these faithful members headed west. While en route, Brigham Young presented to the leaders that he felt inspired to reorganize the Twelve and moved that they now finally sustain a first presidency. After some time, the brethren came to agree. So by December of 1847, the members of the church still in or around Council Bluffs, Iowa, crowded into the Canesville Tabernacle. Canesville was a small settlement just across the river from Winter Quarters. The members of the church named it Canesville after Thomas Kane. You'll remember in the last episode we discussed him. He was the non-Mormon from Washington that helped the members contract the lands in Iowa, where the church was now residing before heading out to Utah. So it had been three and a half years since the death of their beloved prophet Joseph Smith. And all this time, the church had been led by the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles with Brigham Young as the president. But now that the church had found its place in the Rocky Mountains, Brigham Young felt the Twelve shouldn't be housed up in Salt Lake, attending to administrative duties, but out in the four quarters of the earth and continuing to build up the church. After some lively conversations and some minor disagreements, the Twelve in a private meeting came to an agreement and said that the Spirit confirmed in their hearts that Brigham Young was to become the new president of the church. Brigham then presented Heber C. Kimball and Willard Richards as his counselors. The first presidency, now confirmed by the Twelve, invited the members in the area to the Canesville Tabernacle. So on December 27, 1847, the church members in that area met together to sustain a new prophet. The day before, Brigham Young had told all the local members, quote, If you have not been careful to pray night and morning, begin tonight. Pray tomorrow. Come here tomorrow and you shall have one of the best days you have ever had. And see if we can't have a fire that will not go out from this time henceforth. End quote. The meeting began. Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, and Willard Richards were all sustained by vote of common consent and the church finally had its next prophet. Brigham Young closed the meeting by saying, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is here. Joy, communion of the Holy Spirit with each other, and God is here. Let us grow in grace until we come to perfection. May the consolation of the Lord be with you, end quote. With that, a bit of serenity seemed to set in among the members of the church. They had their prophet, they had their refuge in the Rocky Mountains, and the days of wandering on the cold prairies were finally numbered. Even in Utah, the calm of finally settling in seemed to touch the hearts of the members there. That first Christmas, 
celebrated in Utah in 1847, had just under 2,000 members. Due to the late arrival in the valley that summer, food was scarce as they couldn't sow a complete crop. The members living in Salt Lake Basin built a fort around some leaky cabins with dirt floors. Such impoverished conditions would probably shock us, but to the members, this was a Christmas they could celebrate where they weren't living in a wagon. They weren't looking over their shoulders for mobs, and because of this, most of the journal entries of the day spoke of the gratitude the members felt in their hearts. Though there were no presents, Christmas was celebrated by sharing testimonies, warming themselves by a large bonfire, and singing, Come, Come Ye Saints. Of all the Christmas songs available to the members, this one seemed best to capture the moment. Now, of all the journal entries that I read, this note from Rebecca Ryder stuck out to me. She records, quote, Christmas came and the children were hungry. I had brought a peck of wheat across the plains and I hid it under a pile of wood. I thought I would cook a handful of wheat for the baby, but then I thought how we would need wheat for seed in the spring, so I left it alone, end quote. With all the joys and festivities, a restlessness must have set in among the members in Salt Lake. As soon as the snows melted and the frost ceased, they'd have to harvest the land like never before. Not only did they need sufficient food for themselves, but for the tens of thousands of members that were following in their tracks. A significant harvest was required in the summer of 1848, or the members were not going to be able to make this thing work. So after planting their fields in the autumn of 1847, they celebrated Christmas, knowing come spring, they'd really have to get to work on this. By the time March and April of 1848 rolled around, provisions were sorely lacking among the members in Utah. With such a shortage of food, members were placed on food rations, and each member limited to about a half a pound of flour per day. They also survived hunting crows, rabbits, and eating bark, roots, and sago lily bulbs. So the members looked forward to the harvest. However, a late frost damaged a large portion of that harvest. We don't know exactly how much, but according to journals, it was significant. After the frost, the members then found that it almost didn't rain at all for the entire months of May and June. This ruined even more of the crops, as irrigation ditches were still being dug. So in this stressful circumstance, we arrive at today's object. By late June of 1848, the members recorded that they woke up to a chirping, crunching sound and found a huge red wave crawling across the crops. Upon closer inspection, the red wave was determined to be a gigantic swarm of crickets. Millions and millions of crickets. The men, women, and children together grabbed sticks, brooms, and shovels and began the futile process of trying to beat off the crickets. This didn't work. They attempted to dig ditches ahead of the crickets and flooded them, hoping to drown them, but that too didn't work. They then tried a controlled burn to kill the crickets, and this too was unsuccessful. According to the story, they fought the swarms of crickets for almost two weeks without success and about gave up. Now, just pausing our story really quickly, I've seen these crickets. They've come to be called Mormon crickets and infest prairies across the Midwest. In truth, they aren't even crickets, but actually a species of katydid. When I was a young kid, my parents were driving me to my brother's basketball tournament in southern Utah. As we were driving, I saw what looked like a river of red crossing the road from a field. We stopped short of it, 
and were amazed to find that they were a swarm of Mormon crickets. There must have been millions of them. My brother and I grabbed a bottle and we caught a few of them. While we were scooping them up, we also scooped up one that had been hit by a car. And as we began to drive, we were a bit shocked to see that the crickets set in on the dead one and ate it. We discovered what the early Mormon settlers were learning. Just killing the crickets did nothing, as not only did the following swarm eat the crops, but all of those killed in their march across the basin. So what were the Mormons to do at this point? A crop failure would be a tremendous disaster for the thousands of members making their way across the plains at that moment. So, according to the story, the members were all encouraged in late June of 1848 to participate in a three-day fast for a solution. The story goes that on a Sabbath day while Charles C. Rich was preaching, a cloud of white seagulls from the Great Salt Lake flew in and began to devour the insects. They would eat crickets and throw them up again and fill themselves again and right away throw them up again, reported Pretty Meeks, a woman who lived there. The gulls continued their attacks for over two weeks until the crickets were effectively eliminated. According to the story, enough of the harvest was saved for the members to fill their pantries and prepare for the pioneering members about to arrive in the valley. A miracle had occurred. On August 10th, the members gathered for a harvest feast. Parley P. Pratt described in his journal like this, quote, Large sheaves of wheat, rye, barley, oats, and other productions were hoisted on poles for public exhibition. And there was a prayer and thanksgiving, congratulations, songs, speech, music, dancing, smiling faces, and merry hearts. In short, it was a great day with the people of these valleys, and long to be remembered by those who had suffered and waited anxiously for the results of a first effort to redeem the interior deserts of America, and to make her hitherto unknown solitudes blossom as the rose. End quote. The Mormons in the Salt Lake Valley had proven that they could sow a successful crop in the Salt Lake Valley, and they could beat the elements. They were ready to receive the rest of the church and begin the process of building up Zion. Now, what impact did the miracle of the seagulls, as it's come to be known, have on the church and the people of Utah? Historians have really dug into the miracle of the seagulls. Many think that the story was exaggerated. Others say that there is enough evidence to show that it happened as told. But to me, it doesn't really matter because to the members of the church in Utah, this was as impressive of a miracle as any performed by Moses in Egypt. This story would be told and retold by members and missionaries around the globe. To the members, God was watching out for the church and the people in Salt Lake. So, where can you see the Siegel Monument? In 1913, a Siegel Monument was built in Temple Square in Salt Lake City, Utah. The monument stands about 30 feet high. It's made of a granite pillar. And at the bottom, it has four relief panels with pictures trying to convey the early Mormons trying to beat off the crickets. On top of the granite pillar, in bronze, are the sculptures of two seagulls. When you walk through Temple Square in Salt Lake City, there are so many things to see that it's easy to miss. But if you're in Temple Square, be sure to swing by and look at the monument. Today, seagulls are considered a bit of a nuisance. They fill up landfills, and their droppings can cover your windshield or your car. But we should remember that to the early Mormons living in the Salt Lake Valley, the seagulls were a symbol that God was watching over them. Lastly, we should note 
that in 1955, legislature was passed in Utah, making the California seagull the official state bird. I'd like to see another state come up with a better story on how they got their state bird. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode on history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and 50 Objects, episode 39, The Seagull Monument. As always, if you have questions or comments, you can reach out to me directly at joehomc at gmail.com. And again, like always, I'm beating this drum. If you enjoyed this episode, please like or share it on social media or leave me a comment on iTunes. It helps spread the word. Thanks again for listening. 